Hello, my name is Dylan, and this is the Heroes of Reality podcast, a place where I interview heroes of reality, of life, science, technology, and more, and I share the stories, lessons, journeys, inspiring you to be the hero of your reality. Hey, everybody. This conversation is going to be a little different than the rest. This is going to be hyper-focused on the coronavirus. I interview my friend Steve McClowski. He's actually one of the original graduating classes of nanoengineers from the University of Southern California, San Diego. His company Nano actually created an innovative product, a virtual reality collaborative platform to create designer drugs on the nanoscale. It usually has scientists and engineers, but he's working on opening it up to lay people to help them to be able to take their energies to create these unique protein-engineered drugs. And this whole conversation revolves around his product, the coronavirus, virtual reality hackathons or virtual hackathons that allows people to collaborate with his products and other tools so that we can take all this energy that we're feeling about the coronavirus and be able to apply it to some good, some constructive energy. And so we go in-depth talking about this. It's a very fascinating podcast and it involves all the buzzwords you could imagine. Virtual reality, um, the coronavirus, blockchain, uh, nanoscale, uh, quantum engineering, all of that. And it all has a place. So I'm excited to actually announce and introduce my friend, Steve McClowski. Hey, Steve, thanks for joining me today. Hey, Dylan, thanks for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate you being on. I know this was kind of a, a last minute notice, uh, but I recently heard of some of the things that you're working on. And so I really wanted to uh, talk with you about your company, how you got started, and ultimately um, what you're working on with COVID-19 and, and how you're um, trying to help people in that, that space. So with that being started, uh, let's talk a little bit uh, about you and uh, what does your company do and uh, how'd you get started with it? Yeah, so um, hey everyone, I'm Steve McCloskey. Our, our company, Nanome, is actually creating a new interface for interacting with science. Uh, so my background, I was a nano engineer at UC San Diego. Uh, before that, you know, really interested in computers, technology, um, you know, things that would make people live longer and cure diseases as well. And so nano engineering just really fit in terms of a you know role of, of something that I wanted to do. And you know, there was always this. Uh, limitation in terms of two-dimensional interfaces. You, know, you would have chalkboards, whiteboards, um, you know, projectors, handouts, books. Um, you know, it does an okay job at explaining a lot of the um, you know, theory and the math, which is good, but you don't get a good intuition. And so this intuition for the nanoscale, that is you know, the worlds of atoms, molecules, proteins, viruses, um, you know, everything down there is, is nanoscale. So how do you get intuition for something that is abstract as that? something that only you know a few thousand people in the world could actually use microscopes to see. Um, you know, how do you get that idea out to the general public? Uh, how do you make it easy to understand things so you could better tackle diseases, better develop technology quicker? And uh, ultimately that led to then, uh, you know, developing a collaboration platform, which is you know, how do you connect people together? How do you incentivize them to work together? And if something really bad were to happen in the world and everybody kind of needed to work together really, really quickly, uh, how do you how do you build a system uh, that is that is prepared for that, that you could actually mobilize rapidly in times of need? Sure. So from what I know, and uh, somewhat familiar, but if you could please explain to me, how does your uh, 
platform combine virtual reality, blockchain, all these other pieces together that kind of make this, you know, all in one platform that helps at this nanoscale? Yeah. Um, so you know, just think of any buzzword uh, you could think of in the popular media with technology. Um, you know, all of those are important pieces to build a, a broader picture of what new science looks like in the 21st century. Um, so I'm, I'm going to list them all out. You know, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, blockchain, quantum computing. What does all this have to do with each other? Well, they're all different pieces of a puzzle for building this really dope thing that uh, you know, is going to change the way that we, we interact with our world. And so you look at virtual reality, right? You have humans, we have an interface, uh, we have a two-dimensional screen, typically mouse and keyboard, things like that. Well, in nature, for the thousands of years that, you know, hundreds of thousands of years that we've been around uh, as we are, um, you know, this is critical to understand a three-dimensional environment and interact with things with hands. I get hands-on, uh, learn how to do a new technique, learn how to build a new tool. Um, so this is how we're wired. We're not wired with the current interface. So virtual reality unlocks this potential in all of us to, to really get inside of a computer and interact in our, our natural ways that we're used to. Um, you know, blockchain, you know, I talked about ways to get people to work together. Well, have you heard about Rosalind Franklin? Um, she was one of the uh, scientists that uh, was actually working on the, on the genome, mm -hmm. uh, understanding the structure of DNA, RNA. So ha have you heard about uh, Francis Crick? Sounds familiar, but please explain. Well, so so basically, um, you know, we have a, a few people, Crick and Watson and Rosalind Franklin, uh, they're all working on this thing together, uh, but only a few of them actually get the recognition. Um, so there's one aspect of like, how do you correctly attribute people? You know, if they did something, how do you give them fair show that they actually did the work? Mm -hmm. uh, another end, you know, if people are coming up with good ideas, um, you know, there's the idea that other people are going to steal it and take credit for it. Um, so how do you make sure that that's also secure and unchangeable? Mm -hmm. um, then there's the other aspect of incentivization. Well, with blockchain, uh, you could actually, you know, take information and store it on that immutable public ledger that is the blockchain. Um, so once it's there, it's there forever. So if you publish it first, that's kind of like in patenting right now. It's like first to publish as opposed to first to invent. Mm -hmm. Well, if you publish on the blockchain first, then this new model might become first to hash. Mm -hmm. That is, you know, whoever ashes it on the blockchain first is the original inventor. So, um, yeah, we, we've taken this model of like first the hash, um, you know, competitions with incentives for people out there where every time that they submit to the tournament, uh, it's actually you know, logged on the blockchain so they get the credit for it. So you get monetary benefit credit. You could hopefully encourage people to work together and collaborate. Um, so that's that aspect. Yeah. Got it. So you're saying, you know, sometimes people invent things, but they don't publish it. And so someone else will publish it before, even though that someone else has already invented it. And so the power of your system is you're using uh, virtual reality in a collaborative environment. And the people that are participating in this are going through some sort of physical activity, not just looking at a 2D whiteboard, but they're actually manipulating objects inside there. And uh, really the ability to be able to um, go through a process that would allow you to not only as you invent it, they don't need to worry about publishing it because it gets hashed um, through the blockchain. So if I'm inside your platform and I'm doing the motions like I'm folding, mixing, um, those types of things, then it would get registered on the blockchain through your platform. And then if I come up with a solution, a 
cure a new drug of some kind, then I would be I would get acknowledgement, recognition, and own ultimately to some degree ownership of that creation. Is that correct? Exactly, because uh, you know our, our platform is um, yeah we try to make it simple and easy to understand. Yeah, you, know, you have a, a big protein structure in front of you. Uh, we give people design tools to build new chemicals, and each one of those chemicals could be potentially worth you know billions of dollars in terms of intellectual property and everything that happens with drugs as they go through their life cycle in terms of uh, you know pharmaceutical sales. So you know, not many people may realize this in the beginning, but they're sitting on you know vast amounts of uh, potential wealth that they could be building. And if somebody just goes and you know, steals it from them, that's not going to feel too great. Mm. So yeah, it's exactly that. you know getting a good interface, making it easy to use, and then uh, you know giving them an avenue where they could go on the Matrix platform, which is the blockchain platform we developed, um, and just you know submit their their ideas and hash them onto the main Ethereum blockchain. Got it. And how many people can you host inside the platform at once? Are they all collaborating at the same time, or do they have their individual rooms? What does that look like? Yeah. Um, so right now on the platform, and we've been to a few uh, you know virtual conferences uh, since the the COVID nineteen outbreak has began. A lot of people have been moving towards that. Mm-hmm. And so you know, the best uh, examples of this I've seen is they have a, a bunch of sub rooms of like twenty people, mm-hmm. um, and then they have like one main presenter that's essentially the presenter in each one of those twenty rooms. So we'll probably move to that model um, so that we can do larger sessions. Right now, you could do 20 people in the same room all together. Um, you could pass the presenter between each participant. Um, so it's one presenter at a time. Um, and then if you consider people also joining from two-dimensional mode, mm-hmm. uh, because we have the virtual reality where you put on the headset, controllers, all that, you're interacting with Nanom. Uh, we also have the uh, you know WASD moving around uh, with the keyboard and mouse as well. Um, and so that's just like a two-dimensional collaborator, viewer type of participant. And we could host probably hundreds of those. Um, we haven't really stress tested uh, on that end yet. Uh, I'm willing to bet with COVID-19, you probably will be stress testing soon. Yeah, yeah. Well, even um, you know, like last semester, um, yeah, we were doing a um, you know full chemistry class. Actually, like hundreds of students at an Ivy League university, and they you know, they were all going through, and they ended up kind of overloading like one part of our server. So like that was just the tip. Um, yeah, that was way before um, yeah, everything started happening with COVID-19 and everybody going remote. So yeah, probably on the university side of all the researchers there and the students on the biotech side and all the all the people working uh, remote nowadays in pharmaceutical and biotech companies. Yeah, we're probably going to see a lot more people stress testing. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about any of the uh, previous things that you've done with developing uh, molecules or drugs or any types of few cases before the COVID? Like, what are some um, uh, success stories or practical applications that you've been able to develop using your platform? Yeah. Um, so right now, you know, a lot of that information is uh, you know in the hands of our customers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's different biotech and pharmaceutical companies uh, that we've been working with. Uh, some of these molecules are just starting to enter phase one or are starting to get into phase one, uh, where phase one clinical trials is like the first human testing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, it's actually pretty far along the pipeline. I'd say most of the, the molecules that we're working with our customers are still in like preclinical phases, um, you know, things where they're putting it into cell dishes, um, you know, seeing, seeing how effective it is. So most of the stories there are around, um, you know, hey, like I, I was looking at this in a 2D piece of software, and 
And, you know, I, I sent off this molecule to be synthesized by a contract research organization. Mm-hmm. And I paid like $20,000 for that. And then when we got the molecule back, it wasn't working. So we decided to take a look at it in virtual reality with Nanome. And we immediately knew what the problem was. And we realized that we shouldn't have ever sent that off. So there's a lot of you know really great stories like that emerging. And I think that over the next you know, 10 years, as we get the drugs actually into people, uh, with the cycle there, we'll probably see a lot more success stories on that front too. Absolutely. Without naming names or, or companies, I mean, how do they know by visualizing it, by looking at it in a three dimensions versus a 2D that they just instantly got that it wasn't the right um, molecule or wasn't it didn't work effectively? What are the signs or indicators? Is it a you know bright orange light that surrounds things? Is it just that things aren't fitting together? Or can you kind of visually with auditory words walk us through what they might be seeing to know if they were on point or not on point? Yeah, definitely. Um, so we actually did publish a paper in the Journal of Molecular Graphics and Modeling alongside mm-hmm. Novartis, uh, the Genomics Institute of the Novartis Research Foundation. So a lot of the findings from that paper uh, were very interesting. They were using it in a collaborative drug development environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, they had like multiple specialties of scientists working together. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the specialties is a structural biologist. Uh, structural biologists are looking at the structure of a protein. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we all know, you know, DNA, RNA, it's like information for life. Uh, that information is actually encoding like three-dimensional Legos. And, um, you know, the, the way that that works is like every three base pairs of uh, DNA that you have encodes one particular type of uh, chemical called an amino acid. And then each one of those amino acids binds with another amino acid in a string and so you end up with like a big long piece of spaghetti of you know a bunch of different chemicals that are part of that, and based upon which chemicals are in which order, um, you actually will fold into different three-dimensional shapes. And so understanding you know, all that chemical information, that three-dimensional shape, um, you know, being able to get in the binding pocket, draw a molecule, and then minimize it and see how well everything fits together, um, they were actually able to achieve really great results. Um, by just taking an empty binding pocket, drawing in the molecule um, that they thought was supposed to be there, and running a simulation, and just visually even seeing that uh, proved to already be pretty effective. God, so I mean, does it take you know someone that um, has a you know a degree in biology? Um, you know, who, who are the people that if you're going to kind of compile a team? Uh, to work on like something for the COVID, what kind of people do you need inside this collaboration space to be able to work on it effectively? Or could you just have people that don't really, that could get a little bit of cursor information, uh, a little kind of warm up from somebody, say this is how you use it, and then have people spot check? I mean, you know, what people do you really need to be able to effectively know um, if you're making something that has an impact? Yeah, I, I think that um, you know anybody could pick this up. Um, you know, if we put out a um, you know broader series of tutorials, which we're actually starting to do right now, especially with all these students that are going to be homeschooled right now mm-hmm. or remote school uh, with the professors, essentially releasing like a online video series on how to become a drug designer. Um, so we definitely believe in that aspect of like, you know, democratizing science, you know, getting it out there to more people, lowering the barrier of entry so that you don't need very advanced degrees. And like this can be just human understandable. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be publishing that 
um, you know, over the next few months as these um, you know, students are all taking online classes, just to give them some supplemental and see if they could ever help with the pandemic. Um, we'd really like to mobilize students and you know, postdocs, grad students, people with free time. Um, yeah, really anybody at this point could be contributing designs and ideas. Uh, there's just a really large amount of chemical space in terms of options out there, and we haven't ever begun exploring all that. Yeah, how to be a drug designer? That that sounds like a very um, clickbaity but very interesting title uh, in this in this day and age. With yeah. with that, so let's just say someone wants to get into it and they take a look at the tutorials and they're like, okay, I you know I'm sitting at home, I have a lot of free time, and I want to use your system. And um, do they do do they download it from? Steam? Do they do they have an Oculus Rift or a Vive headset, or you know how do they get started in it? Yeah, so we try to be very accessible to everyone. Um, you could go on Steam, you could go on Oculus uh, Vive port. Um, if you want to be on Oculus Quest, we actually need to add you specifically to that, or you could actually find us on SideQuest. Mm. So yeah, you could go on your know, your favorite virtual reality platform and just type in the search bar Nanome N A N O M E. And you should see our software pop right up. Um, it's on all the available platforms. Got it. Now, with this, um, you know, so I have a background of doing hackathons, game jams, things like that for virtual reality. I've run a community over here, I've ran things for, you know, uh, Irvine, uh, US, UCI, I've ran things for USC, MIT. And the, the ones that we were going to be doing recently was a, uh, a medical hack over at the uh, you know, Boston's Children's Hospital in person in June. Uh, as of late, we've decided to, um, A, push that back to a better time to meet in the physical space, and then B, uh, start working on a virtual hackathon uh, trying to not only work on this pandemic and attempting to flatten the curve in any way, shape possible, but also for future pandemics. I mean, what would you imagine... Um, uh, an online virtual hackathon look like uh, using your equipment and you know what would that look like how long would that take um, you know how much time how would they know if they're being effective all of that kind of stuff yeah um, so typically with hackathons you have winners um, so I, I would recommend you know putting the challenges onto the matrix platform um, so that's at uh, m-a-t-r-y-x dot a-i um, with that, you could actually you know, host tournaments or bounties, kind of put out a, a call to action, and then um, you know whoever creates the tournament will be able to choose the winners. Uh, it's a model that we've currently adapted to. So, um, you know, in this way, we could essentially have a um, you know judging criteria, and then you know award that to different people, and that could be like you know monetary compensation as well, um, or you know peer tokenized compensation. So, uh, you know, that would be on the like technical logistic tournament side in mm -hmm. terms of, you know, using Nanome platform. Um, yeah, you could have people actually participate um, through virtual reality at their homes. Uh, we could put out a essentially like protein target where we clean everything up, you know, which is part of the job of structural biologists is actually to clean up the protein so that the other people that are you know mostly computational chemists or medicinal chemists could then design drugs together. So we would play the role of the structural biologist, clean up the protein, highlight the different areas, uh, probably use our macro system, which could script different actions and tell a story, uh, create a macro for you know telling the story of how the COVID-19 um, protein structures work. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is spike. Um, so if you notice the crown 
on the outside on all the images. On uh, a crown, I mean, on the, yeah, the crown of the coronavirus. Like, oh. you know how, yeah, they have all the, the microscope pictures and like, that's why it's called a corona is because it kind of looks like a crown. Oh, okay. I, actually, I didn't know yeah. that. Okay. So, so yeah, all the image, or at least the, I don't know, some people or some news outlets just kind of post random stuff as well. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, if you look at it under like an electron microscope, uh, what you have is, is a ball mm -hmm. with a bunch of spikes coming out of this ball. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at it in 2D, it looks like a disc with a bunch of like crowns coming out. And so th that's how it got its name originally, um, which was, you know, Back in the day, um, you know, definitely around the SARS era, like 2003, 2004, mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot of research on this. And so we know a lot of information about the virus. We know a lot about the proteins um, and those spikes around the edges. Um, that's actually a key area of interest for people developing vaccines, uh, because if you could develop an antibody that could bind with that spike, um, you know, you could essentially get rid of the disease more rapidly. Um, so that's one aspect um, that actually binds to like your human cells. Uh, it's called the ACE2 protein. So you have like a protein on protein, like three dimensional like, uh, Lego type of fit. Mm -hmm. So if you have something in between, you can make an inhibitor or a blocker. Um, that could also work. Um, there's also um, you know another protein which um, you know is crucial to the function of the virus, where it's like the little protein factory that um, you know does its motions. It's called a protease. And so you could also design a chemical that fits into that one. And so we, we could release all these as like challenges so that people could then try to design stuff. Got it. So, you know, the you'd say here's here's several different criteria criteria. Here's a number of different ways that you could help have an impact, uh, you know, whether you're going to have a protein that could bind with it um, or these these other systems. And then uh, you would have um, these challenges go out and then the a structural biologist or somebody would review it at the end of the hack and say, OK, uh, this seems like this has legs. Um, this one doesn't. We'll, we'll announce this one as the winner for the hack. How long does it take to go from uh, a structural biologist looking at the actual um, results from the hackathon to uh, what's what happens after that testing implementation uh, implementation? Do we take it and, and, and test it on animals or do we run it through a, a computer, you know, beyond the life of the hack? What are, what's what goes on if there is a um, a chance for a, uh, a seemingly winner that, you know, that you know, shows possibility? Yeah, um, so I'd like to reference uh, Foldit actually. So that that's another um, you know great application. It's like two dimensional protein folding. So you mm -hmm. kind of like click and mouse and drag and stuff. Um, so David Baker, you know, his lab is actually running a Foldit competition right now, um, where he will like physically synthesize um, everything being created, um, and he seems pretty open to collaboration. So like at this point, like there's just a million uh, you know university research labs around the world. Where if you have something promising, where you could show even good computational data, mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think it's going to be hard to find people to synthesize this, uh, especially around you know, UC San Diego, um, where you know, I'm based in San Diego right now and have a lot of connections there. Um, yeah, I'm sure that there's plenty of ways to physically test this out if we have some good computational data. And I think that you know, validating computationally is going to be the first step there. Sure. So you you know, 
virtually be able to actually, you know, create the structure of these molecules or these proteins, test it out in the system, um, like fold it and say, okay, this thing has promise. And then just having a network of um, labs that would be willing to synthesize, go here, try this out, try this out. Then they would go off and synthesize it, test it and be able to run to say, okay, this, you know, this, this passes the synthesization phase. And then we're going to go on to other types of trials beyond that. Correct. Yeah, and in theory, this could all even be managed with the blockchain platform, where instead of like a, a tournament for creating a new protein, uh, the next bounty is created to then uh, synthesize it or test it. And then you could even you know, award people and get people to do distributed research that way, um, where you say, hey, you know, this tournament's going to have up to 10 winners. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to synthesize this, do this, do this, and then you will be paid X amount. Um, and, you know, when that happens, um, you know, maybe the research will be made public or, you know, some, some criteria like that. And so you could have, um, you know, all these people really giving independent verifications of the data. It's kind of like uh, if you've ever read the book Rainbow's End, uh, we ended up reading that after we kind of built the system. But like it's a very similar system where you have this like crowdsource global scientific network uh, coming up with ideas, testing things, making things. Uh, producing them in quantity, um, yeah, like we need to shift to to online supply chains like that. So I actually haven't read it. So it's a it's a, a fiction book called Rainbow's End. Yeah, yeah, it's a science fiction book called uh, Rainbow's End. Oh, I haven't checked out yet. The online supply chain is interesting because you know one of the issues that we have is not only you know the. Uh, the disease itself um, having such an impact uh, on, you know, people meeting up in the physical space, which has its own drawbacks, but also the issues that has on logistics, being able to have, you know, uh, goods arrive into the area, the, the amount of stress it's doing on the physical network because of uh, logistics, people running out of toilet paper, people running out of other things. It's it's really interesting to see that it's it's um, we're really a fragile system when all of a sudden we can't meet in the physical space. So the online logistics is something that's really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, in terms of like community involvement, um, you know, this could be a platform for just, you know, localizing in a community. You could say, hey, I, I want to fund a um, you know, pop up testing center in San Diego or I want to fund a um, you know, emergency toilet paper delivery service or, you know, whatever, whatever the need is. Like it doesn't necessarily need to be all the scientific work. Like I think people just need a better way to connect and, and really share their services together. A hundred percent. Everything goes well until you have these single points of sell- failure that, you know, break down the whole system, you know, whether there's, I don't know, uh, an EMP that knocks out the network or whatever it might be, and then everything comes crashing down. Um, you know, besides the, um, what your system does, I guess, what are the, what do you, what do you think there are other ways to build resilience uh, to any future pandemics? What are things that people could do um, like the online uh, logistics planning that could help uh, mitigate the risk of any of this pandemic or future ones. Yeah, um, you know, hard to say exactly what we could do. A lot of these are, are kind of like um, you know day zero type of outbreaks where yeah we, we've had SARS in the past, um, but it didn't spread as rapidly. It wasn't as undetectable for you know much of the population as this one is, mm-hmm. um, and so you know it's kind of just spread itself unchecked for a while. And now we're finally kind of waking up to that. So I, I think that in the future, if we get hit by another day zero type event where it's already in, you know, 150 countries around the world and just growing exponentially, 
um, you know, we really got to be able to react quickly. So I, I think that you know, we're going to learn a lot from this one. So whatever we end up doing over the next 6, 12, 18 months uh, is going to influence the future ones. Um, in terms of our platform, you know, building a better um, you know, mechanism to allow people to easily uh, come up with new targets and, and do the scientific crowdsourcing as these things are emerging. Mm-hmm. You know, that would definitely be a step in the right direction. Uh, reducing the amount of uh, animals that humans interact with. Um, that, that's kind of an easy one, but like hard. It, it's easy to think of, well, if we didn't have livestock and exotic animal trade and other other activities involving humans touching, um, you know, just interacting with a lot of animals in, you know, confined locations, like you would drastically reduce the probability of us, you know, getting diseases from animals and then transferring, uh, you know, transferring it human to human. Um, but, you know, we'll see, like that one is up to world governments to, to really change those policies. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And also when you're talking about the, you know, it, it takes a, a big scare for us to learn a lesson, uh, very much like 9-11, you know, uh, the original uh, MO uh, when somebody, when you're jacked, like hijacked in the plane was to sit still, don't do anything, other people take care of it. But since, you know, the they crashed it into the uh, the towers and all that other things it's it's much more difficult to actually jack a plane without having everybody rise up and go no no if i don't do anything we're going to crash and burn so we need to get up and fight it went from you know freeze to to fight mode in terms of the survival pattern with a uh, 9/11 it seems like with this whole outbreak and scare you know we are realizing how vulnerable we are and we just need to shift our our patterns of, you know, what do we do in times of stress? And, you know, how do we have, you know, a virtual fire drill to say, okay, this is, we all need to go into lockdown. We all need to go online. We need to make sure that these certain systems are in place so that we can kind of be resilient while being at a distance. Uh, When you're saying day zero, could you explain to me what that is a bit? Oh yeah, sure. So, um, you know, day zero, I guess it's more of a hacker community type of thing. Um, but like a day zero hack is a new, uh, exploit that nobody has discovered in the past. Therefore it hasn't been patched and people might not be able to detect it. Um, so, you know, a lot of times if you look at, um, you know, cyber crime, cyber defense, things like that, um, they'll use this term to just, you know, say that, you know, somebody has a weighted hacker system or there's some exploit that they know about that hasn't been done before. And once you use it once, it doesn't, it's no longer a day zero exploit. Um, so it, it's really only like you use it the one time and then people know about it. Got it. Okay. It's almost like inoculation. The first time no one's aware, then after that people become aware and it's become patched. So it's no longer a viable option. Okay. Yeah, and we're still working on the patch for COVID nineteen. Uh, it might take a while. <laughs> yes. Yeah. System update. Yeah. A hundred percent. What do you think is? I mean, can your system really? I mean, you said there's a number of different ways that your system could be valuable. Do you see if if enough people were to get on your system and there was enough energy, resources, and focus, could could we really actually flatten this curve using your technology, or is it just it's just too soon? And this will be just a great learning lesson for future pand- pandemics. You know, is it is it something that's going to be solvable for uh, the crisis now, or is it going to be more for later? situations 
we don't have a cure right now. Mm -hmm. um, we don't have a treatment right now. We have ideas for what a treatment can be with a uh, repurposed drug called remdesivir. Mm -hmm. um, that one uh, used, uh, I was talking about that kind of like protein factory type of protein that you know has a certain task. Um, you know, that protease um, system is common in other viruses like HIV. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we have this drug that worked against things like that, but it's not really specialized for the coronavirus protease. Um, so, you know, it, there could be a, a new version of remdesivir that is slightly modified that might even be a bit stronger. Um, you know, people can work on something like that, like that could help. And anything else, like we just don't have something that works. So if you have... Is kind of like the uh, million uh, monkeys on a typewriter, infinite monkeys on a typewriter, essentially <laughs> type Shakespeare. Well, you know, how many do you need or you know, how many people do you need to just come up with something that's good enough? Maybe not full Shakespeare, but you got a few good sentences in there and it's it's good enough to work. Um, and, and I think that right now it could definitely be a tool that mm -hmm. if you got it out there people and there was a streamlined mechanism of computationally testing and validating uh, all these new design ideas mm -hmm. um, and giving people essentially like artificial intelligence like quantum computing superpowers where they're just interacting in virtual reality and they might not understand all the um, you know back-end simulation stuff going on mm -hmm. um, but you could break down into terms that they understand like you know points and a score um, yeah they could definitely help um, you know, create something uh, that that's gonna be pushed just like every other piece of science being pushed right now. Um, you know, vaccines need to be developed. Uh, if you understand the antibodies and the binding of the uh, you know the SARS-CoV-2 uh, structures and the the human structures, you know that that could help out in vaccine development. Uh, there could be monoclonal antibodies, which are uh, antibodies that you 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 know you you could produce and keep cloning them. Um, you know, small molecule drugs, uh, really just like we, we need more ideas right now and we need more testing and validation of that. Got it. So you're saying like, you know, right now, you know, there isn't an exact cure, but we could start with a, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants with this, um, what'd you call it? Res... Uh, remdesivir. Remdesivir. So that that is a, a a good place to start. It's not it's not optimized, but if you had you know a million monkeys on typewriters working on that, it's a good place to start and say properly incentivized. Then they they could possibly through the powers of you know permutation and just trial and error, you know, come up with something that could be solid and much like how mean you could pick up a ball and I could throw a ball to you and you could catch the ball and you you don't fully have the calculations behind gravity and friction and resistance but intuitively just through looking through your physical environment you can make some uh, natural inherent assumptions by just you know knowing how things work in the physical space you know you don't actually need to calculate the, the gravity to know when I throw a ball up over here it's going to land over there something like that Exactly. And, and, you know, the equations of gravity, um, you know, this isn't built into to our DNA or hardwired that, you know, we know the laws of gravity. Uh, you know, we understand that through trial and error. As kids, we're you know, pretty bad with understanding gravity. Uh, we might, you know, fall off places or, um, you know, throw something and it doesn't go where we want it to go. Uh, but over time, we, we learn to adapt to, to those equations. And I think in the same way that a lot of things um, you know, at the nanoscale might feel unintuitive. Mm -hmm. uh, the more you interact with them, uh, the more it's going to become natural and intuitive, like you know, like throwing a ball. 100%. That makes sense. So, I mean, right now, in terms of really the resources 
you need to, um, you know, take massive action. Is I mean, you just need bodies of people to to get into it, some sort of uh, mechanism or system. Say, okay, these are the bounties, this is the flow, and this is the pattern. And then if you could just throw uh, as much manpower to brute force it, um, then the 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 human ingenuity, the human creativity would would take over, and then you know magic would come from it to a degree. If you have enough people working on it, and the right incentive, uh, you, what you really need is just human ingenuity, creativity, and and manpower. Right now, using your system to possibly come up with you know, unintuitive solutions. Yeah. C- combined with uh, a ton of uh, computational superpowers, let's call them. <laughs> computational superpowers. Are you, are you saying that's machine power or manpower? Um, well, it, you know, the, the human has to guide the computer and there has to be like a feedback loop established where, mm-hmm. you know, we work on our strengths, which is, you know, our eyes, our hands, our, our, our brains, our creativity, things like that. Mm-hmm. And the machine has other aspects that are good. Um, you know, quick calculations, uh, validation of different ideas uh, to see if they would work computationally. Everyone, you know, some people have AI that could, you know, take input of different things and then generate new things such as new chemical structures. And so, you know, there, there's one faction where people think that artificial intelligence could just be this black box where we could say, hey, you know, cure Corona and it'll spit out the result and it'll be magic. Um, and then there's this other group that thinks that, hey, you know, I'm a I'm a scientist, like I, I know this area, like you know, let me develop my thing, and you know, I I can do it my own way. And so, you know, neither of those crowds is exactly right. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you really need uh, people working together with computers, uh, the best tools out there, whether it's artificial intelligence or just you know regular computing or even quantum computing. Um, and they need to be able to understand those results and and give the system more feedback mm-hmm. so that the system could either optimize its designs um, or just you know keep getting new data so that you could make better decisions. And okay. and you don't need an advanced degree. You know, I, I think anyone can figure this stuff out if you make it presentable. Yeah. So it, what you're talking about is almost like a coaching loop to where, you know, you have uh, the humans being creative, uh, humans being creative goes and hits a possibly a machine algorithm uh, that could possibly doing predictive analytics or outputs going, well, we should looking at all these outputs. This is one that is a viable option. Then you have a subject matter expert reviewing that data set saying, oh, this is viable. I'm going to go ahead and synthesize it, synthesize it or create it and then test it and then thumbs up. You did well, you didn't do good. And that feeds back to the loop of the people on the field actually messing with the molecules. Correct? Something like that? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that, you know, that synthesis pipeline, um, you know, there's different pharmaceutical companies that are working on like complete automation of uh, synthesis and testing. And so you know, even the future model could be quicker um, where that physical testing and synthesis method uh, could be a very quick part of the cycle as well as the rest. Um, so we could get into these really quick, tight feedback loops of, you know, AI design, human design, AI design, human design, you know, computational verification. Cool. Send it off to the robots. Okay. Physical verification. Okay. You know, like this is going to be a winner or this isn't working. Mm-hmm. And then you figure out it's not working. That makes sense. With You talked about you think anybody could understand this intuitively if you had the right um, points, um, you know, uh, badges, incentive structure, things like that. Could you talk to me a little bit about if you were to kind of gamify this system, uh, primarily for say COVID? Uh, you know, what would what would the you know 
the the points, the instructions, the guidance, the gamification. What would that kind of stuff look like uh, using your system? Yeah, uh, one of the easiest ways to look at it, and this is what Foldit does as well, is just the energy of the system. And so if you make the goal to get to the lowest energy state possible, um, you know, why that's important is because uh, proteins uh, are just you know, a string of spaghetti that folds into a three-dimensional shape like a Lego. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you know, that Lego can be many different ways, uh, but only some of them are going to have a very low energy state that is the most favorable. Mm-hmm. And so it gets into probabilities where it says you know, 80% of the time this protein likes to be in this shape. Um, and you know, maybe 20% of the time it likes to be in this other shape mm-hmm. and you, you could determine things like that if you understand the energies of the shapes of the protein. And so, yeah, that's how you do the protein folding. Um, you could also design a, um, you know, protein, protein interaction or protein, uh, small molecule ligand, like just a chemical on there, uh, interaction. And you could, um, you know, get the energy of the system that way. And that could give you guidelines, mm-hmm. uh, if you're on small molecules, you could also do a docking simulation. Um, you know, some people don't trust docking, some people do. Um, but it, you know, at the end of the day, it's a tool that could help guide people. And what that does is it tests like goodness of fit. Um, so you you will you know physically like be placing a key, uh, which is the chemical, in different ways with the protein, which is kind of like the lock, mm-hmm. um, and generating scores that way. Um, so yeah, there's just you know, a lot of computational tools out there that could generate scientific data and then you put that scientific data in a nice package and just call it a score and you say hey you know your thing got 100 points and you know everybody else got 90 points or 80 points and you're the winner um yeah you don't necessarily need to give them the data um but you know making it easy to find so they can look at it if they they want to go deeper in the science sure so that sounds like uh, there's a couple of things there it's almost like um uh, you could give them a score based on multiple modalities, uh, low energy, the ability to frictionlessly dock or uh, any of these other points. And then they just they receive a score. Oh, well, this one got a, a 98. Maybe if I move it this way, I get a 90, 99, you know, and, and they don't really need to know why are they getting a 98, 99. They just know that by moving these things around and testing it out using ideally some sort of automatic frictionless machine, they can get back a score. And they can know that they are improving and making progress, and that's ultimately the all that matters. Exactly. Um, or, or in the case of a structure-based drug design, you're actually looking at every you know little chemical, every atom that you add to your chemical uh, each time you're growing it and changing it. Um, you're forming different interactions, so you could actually go granular and try to look at it at the physics level mm-hmm. and see, okay, you know, this atom is you know 0.3 nanometers away from this atom. Oh, that means that they're going to form a hydrogen bond because one of them is, you know, colored this way because it's a receptor, uh, and one of them is colored this way because it's a donor. And so, you know, now I can just like visually see that, get a good distance feel in there, and then just like check the distances out. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, also predict some interactions where like every move they do is, um, you know, going to be, uh, you know, adding to their score and changing it. Gotcha. It's it's interesting, uh, you know, the the. The thought of low energy, it, it reminds me very much of humans, right? We inherently, you know, want to do the lowest energy activity possible. What, you know, sugar, give me the, the, low, the biggest bang for the buck. I want to do the lowest, the lowest amount of energy to get the best results. And, you know, it sounds like uh, these molecules and proteins are, are very similar. And the fact that they, they're, they, you know, whatever is the 
most common path for them to form, like a like a hair that always curls in the same shape. It's going to take that same pattern because it's used to doing that pattern. It's used to taking that shape, and so um, apl- applying this. Um, Applying this to the level of actual drug design uh, makes a lot of intuitive sense to me, at least. Um, how long or how far are you like away from, you know, setting up a system that would allow people to work on this gamification process uh, um, with COVID? What do you, you know, do you have a? If we were to actually set up a virtual hack uh, to use your system, how long would it take you to kind of get ready? Um, for this, if we were to kind of throw out an open call and be like, hey, guys, you know, um, you know, you might be a structural biologist, you might not be, you might just be a, um, a, a teacher that just has a lot of time on their hands because you ain't going to school right now. Um, come sign up and let's see if we can make an impact. Do you have a, a timeline for how long it would take before people can kind of sign up to some sort of virtual hack using your system? Yeah. Um, so, so right now, you know, the, the software is usable. Um, it's a bit scientificy because you know we did make it for um, you know industry pharmaceutical research first. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like you know making it gamified, like I'm not completely convinced that we absolutely need it to be gamified for a lot of people to participate. Mm-hmm. Um, so even the state where it's in right now, I, I think with some guidance, definitely like a um, you know YouTube series um, you know this whole like how to be a drug designer series mm-hmm. uh, I think that if people could you know get through that and actually learn a bit of the science on their own uh, as they're learning how to use the nanome tools mm-hmm. I, I think that's that's going to be enough to get a lot of people involved especially if they're you know students and you know biochemistry or chemistry interested in you know augmenting their learning now that all of their classes are on uh, you know video calls right now um, they get something more immersive and actually help out with the pandemic that's interrupting with their lives. Uh, for the fully gamified platform, um, yeah, it, it's not currently uh, something that we we put as a high priority just because you know there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies that we work with where we're trying to build in uh, all the scientific components that are also necessary uh, to make this whole system work. So um, you know, it, it could be soon. I'd say definitely if things keep progressing and uh you know we're still not finding uh you know enough good ideas with the the current audience that is up for watching these youtube videos and and understanding a little bit more about science um then yeah the next step would probably be to make it more gamified um you know let more people kind of hop on and uh you know come up with better ideas so even today's form um is going to be a good step a starting point for people yeah i agree with you on that one not everything needs to be gamified. There is an inherent gamification. And, and part of that is, you know, we, we all have a, a, a sense of survival. If you start getting, you know, you get dropped in the jungle and you start getting chased by a monster, you don't need gamification to run away from that monster. And if you look at, you know, this pandemic, you know, everybody is feeling the heat, uh, not only from the actual disease itself, but the energy of the crowd of this mob mentality of people, you know, running around, you know, buying up all the toilet paper going, oh, my gosh, I got to get ready. And they I feel like people have this energy that they want to be able to apply towards something. Right. And you can only vigorously wash your hands so many times to where you don't feel really empowered, you know. So, you know, how do you take this natural energy of the fear? And it's not necessarily a bad energy. It's just, you know, fear is telling you to prepare. And, you know, how do you apply that to, to some good? And so, 
I completely agree. I don't think you need a gamified thing that necessarily shows that, you know, well, you know, you did a good job. But if there was some sort of feedback loop, more than anything, gamification is just a quicker form of feedback. And so what I'm interested in is if we were to structure a hackathon online and virtual using your system, you know, how do we create that feedback loop? You know, maybe it's not, you know, it's completely, you know, automatic where it's, you know, you know, 80 points, 90 points, 100 points, ding, that kind of thing. But then would it be, I'm designing this molecule, I'm, I'm in it with a, a team of people, I have, you know, uh, five or six uh, biology students that I'm working with that I've recruited from some of the places that I know. And, you know, I think I've found something, do I then hit a button and that goes and flags a, a structural biologist to review it? Or, you know, what would that, what would that feedback loop look like on in a virtual hackathon style? You know, part of the hackathon could even be the, the development of the feedback loop. Mm. Um, you know, have the, the pieces in play. Um, we're releasing the, uh, we call it the plugin system. We'll probably uh, have a different name, but we're going to be releasing that in April. And that allows people to connect with a wide variety of computational sources. So it could be validation. Uh, it could just be interacting with um, you know other other servers and sending the data out to other people. Um, so, so this whole plugin system is something that we have open source. Um, so people could, you know, submit their own ideas, um, you know, use the plugin system to develop uh, actually pieces of code that could link up a virtual, you know, supply chain type of system uh, for all this. So, you know, we, we could definitely provide the resources that we currently have. Mm-hmm. And I think that this, this is something that the community needs to also mold. So you have open source code that people could take a look at your system and say, look, we need a, a a feedback loop of, uh, to, to know that, you know, people are on track or they're on track. So, so maybe someone else goes, Oh, I know of a a testing system that can test molecules. I know of a, I know a way to plug this into some sort of, um, um, directory of labs that could synthesize it and they could put all those pieces together to where they could open source it to where if, you know, they have hooks, you, they hit a button inside your application, that hook then hits their system that then tests it, that then hits the directory that then flags and notifies a lab that then they verify it. And then that thing's off to the races. That could also be a piece of the actual hackathon. Definitely. And even in the early stages, I mean, right now, like, you know, if they're just creating a bunch of drug designs, protein designs, like, you know, we have people using uh, the Nanom virtual reality software right now mm-hmm. uh, that would, you know, they're looking for ideas. So um, I'm actually, uh, after this podcast, uh, I'm going to be hopping on to a call or really a virtual reality meeting um, with Dr. Kuiper, um, who was the researcher we had the coronavirus stream, uh, who's working at a national research lab in Australia. Uh, on vaccine development. And so he's actually looking at that spike protein as a big target for vaccine development and helping out teams there. Um, you know, meanwhile, we have Mars Bio, um, which is a Los Angeles-based like biotech hub um, where Rob Reinhardt, uh, I don't know if you've ever drinking Soylent, um, the, the beverage. I haven't. I've had other similar th- um, kind of, I guess, green drinks, but could you explain a little bit about it? Yeah, yeah. It's a, well, Soylent, uh, first off, is like ultimate prepper food. Um, you know, you just, if you had like a good supply of water and a good supply of Soylent, like you really don't need anything else around. Because mm-hmm. everybody's buying frozen goods and, you know, that, that's not going to last long. Your bags of rice, like, you know, what happens if you don't have power? Yeah, I don't think things are going to get that bad. Um, but I have a, you know, multi month supply of Soylent always around just in case there's an earthquake or, or something like this. And so, um, yeah, Soylent is a, you know, 
beverage ready to drink out of a bottle, um, or they sell a powdered version um, that is uh, currently the one I'm talking about. And so the the founder of that, Rob, uh, he's currently running this biotech hub in LA. And so he's also going to be hopping on this virtual reality session. Um, and we're going to be talking about, you know, Rob and his antibody development work. I'm mm-hmm. um, so collaborating with some people down in San Diego at, uh, you know, Scripps Research. Um, and then we're going to be talking with with Michael on the protein. So, you know, connecting people together with their research. Um, you know, if we come up with good ideas from this community hackathon, mm-hmm. um, there's plenty of people um, without having a completely autom- automated chain uh, that would be willing to hop out and, and you know, do a paper or scientific study on these. Yeah, hundred percent. We call that the the concierge mode, where you know it, it seemingly is automatic, but really there's just a bunch of people on fire running around in the background, just you know delivering these things, bringing it from A to B, and just doing the manual process, which is the way you should be doing things before you try to automate, you know, anyways, because you you know the, the humans have the ability to kind of think through everything and figure out you know what really makes sense versus you know, machines really streamline it once you got it all smoothed out. So that makes a ton of sense. And that's, that's, that's awesome. So, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of energy around, you know, people wanting to figure out, you know, how do they, you know, how do they help? How do they contribute? How do they, you know, how do they get the, you know, get out there and actually make a difference in this without being able to meet people, which is, you know, this, this sense of isolation, you know, forced separation is, you know, it creates a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, negative emotions and feelings, uh, because we aren't able to connect and we don't feel empowered. And so, you know, what you're doing and what you're building, I, I, it, you know, was, you know, I think has a lot, um, you know, has a lot of value and has a lot of impact to what's going on right now, you know, giving people a way to virtually connect and contribute to the overall cause and try to say, you know, you know, Hey, this is, this is a painful lesson, but because it's painful, we're going to remember it. And now we're going to try to find a way to apply it so that we can, we can, you know, fight this. And you know, that is the one thing that is good about, uh, you know, about this whole situation is, you know, the silver lining being is the fact that like, it lets us know one, um, you know, we aren't alone. You know, we all have our, you know, daily issues and, and stripes and things like that. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, this disease is affecting us all and we are all, you know, one people, we are all fighting this together and it's not, you know, me against you or, you know, any of that. It's all of us in this, in this, you know, fight for survival. And so I, I, you know, I, I, I'm really excited because I was looking for some way uh, that people could really, you know, take up arms and, and put their energy to good use, you know, other than washing their hands. And so I'm, I'm excited that you have all this. Um, where would you go? Where would you say people go to um, w- find out more about uh, if they wanted to kind of do their own research about these 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 folding systems, uh, about what you have kind of prep up, get ready and, you know, are interested. But, you know, we haven't officially launched this, you know, a, a set date for the hackathon. How do they kind of prep up uh, to get mentally prepared to wrap their heads around your system, uh, nanotechnology um, and kind of start to develop those hone those skills at home while they're waiting yeah um so you know if you have access to a virtual reality headset um and you want to go on oculus steam uh, just downloading the application directly uh, trying out the tutorial getting a feel for it um and then looking at our youtube series mm-hmm. um so if you go to youtube.com slash nanome n-a-n-o-m-e 
uh, you could actually see a ton of videos. Uh, we did uh, Nanom of the Months, which is like a different uh, molecule or some uh, nanomaterial. And so there's everything from um, you know batteries, solar cells, all the way up through drugs that are on the market. Uh, if you've ever um, you know, see those drug commercials uh, that are going on and you know when you're watching television, uh, we've done a few uh, popular ones. So you might have actually seen these on the market. Um, mm -hmm. So we have a few drugs like that um, that we've done a in-depth explanation on the scientific research papers. We have like a huge, you know, uh, refrigerator-sized PDF uh, that you could, you know, scale the size of. So we pull that up next to the three-dimensional protein structure, um, and then we actually like zoom into the binding pocket and like show how these chemicals were designed. Um, so yeah, that YouTube um, series should give you a pretty good idea on what you could do with Nano. Um, and then if you uh, want to find more information, you can go on our website at nanome.ai. Beautiful, beautiful. And um, I guess the, the last question I'll ask is, I mean, you know, I mean, what message do you have for people out there right now um, that are that are going through this? I mean, what I mean, what advice would you give them, um, uh, you know, about your technology or about uh, COVID in general? Yeah. Um, you know, try to try to avoid going outdoors. Um, yeah, that's probably the, the easiest thing that people could do right now. Um, yeah, you made a great point about funding low energy systems. Uh, that's kind of like the lowest energy uh, way to help is just like really just don't leave your house if, if you don't have to. And there shouldn't really be many reasons to have to leave. So, um, yeah, order some Soylent. Um, I think Soylent's a great uh, backup beverage that, you know, satisfies all of your calories, all of your you know, vitamin needs. And could replace a lot of your meals if you you know don't really uh, you know have the ability to go out to the store. So yeah, or you know hunker up, order some Soylent, and uh, order a VR headset so you could be entertained during all of this, and potentially help out by using Nanom. So yeah, buy VR, stock up on Soylent. Beautiful, uh, Steve. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate your time and what you're working on. And um, I, I look forward to uh, working on this hack with you, man. This is this has been great. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Don. Yeah. Looking forward to it too. And yeah, thanks for having me on this podcast. Hopefully, we could uh, you know motivate people to actively um, you know take hold of this virus and try to come up with a cure or a vaccine for it. Love it. Love it. Thank you, Steve. Have a beautiful day, and uh, I'll see you soon. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Don. Right. See you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback on how to improve the podcast, I would cherish that. Please give me an email or shout out at Dylan at heroesofreality.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N at heroesofreality.com. Stay strong, young adventures. Until next time.